Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 712. My interview with Catherine A. Sanderson, The Positive Shift, an inspiring conversation about happiness, Uh, it's so cool to have you. Um, I love the topic of happiness and you're all about it. So um, tell us tell us your passions, Catherine. What are you all about and what do you do? So I am a professor of psychology at Amherst College in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so I teach psychology, but I also write and I talk around the country about happiness and health. How long have you been studying psychology and, I suppose, the passion in, in happiness and health? I've been studying psychology for about 25 years, but only within about the last five years have I been specifically focused on happiness. So a broad background in psychology, but I've come to happiness in terms of my own research more recently. Okay. And, and what led you um, in the last five years to really delve into the research around happiness? So for years, the field of psychology focused entirely on negative things. So neuroses and depression and anxiety, psychological disorders, and people who studied psychology focused on those sorts of problems that, of course, do exist in the world. And about 10 years ago, there was a real shift broadly in the field of psychology in which the emphasis became not just focusing on the bad, but also focusing on the good. So also focusing on joy and contentment and Mm. meaning and purpose and passion. And so that was a general shift within the field of psychology. And I was lucky enough to be kind of in the the right place at the right time to to do some talking and teaching and writing about that. Okay. What, What was the reason for the shift in that, in the field of psychology? There was a specific person, Marty Seligman, a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. He became president of the American Psychological Association, the biggest organization of psychologists. And he basically said, the focus of my term is going to be on positive psychology. So he really shifted the whole direction of the field in what I think is a remarkable way. And is that still happening in in such a, I suppose, powerful way, the shift towards a more of a focus on on the positive psychology rather than the negative? Because I still feel that there is this case of we talk about, you know, depression and anxiety and all these things that affect our lives. And it seems to have a, I suppose, a placebo effect on society and perhaps it sounds or feels and even becomes more rampant than it actually is or needs to be. Uh, the the sort of uh, perception of depression and anxiety and so on. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, there's there's conflicting research out there that shows that, you know, especially in the younger um, ages, that there's a lot of depression. Depression's higher than it's ever been before. Um, but then there's other researchers showing that um, we are happy than we've ever been before as a society um, across the globe. And, and that varies depending on where you are, but um, certainly in the West where there's affluence and, and money and, and all that sort of thing, there seems to be um, an increased sense of happiness because we've got more time, we've got more money, we've got better life um, standards. Um, so there seems to be that conflict there, and I don't know you know, if negative psychology is affecting that. Well, and, and I think one of the, the really key factors within this is that it's very hard to sort of disentangle what are all the different effects. So as you point out, there's more affluence. So people in that sense, you know, aren't worried about basic survival. But then at the same time, that's also coupled with this increasing prevalence of social media. So you also have people doing this constant comparison with other people. And so I think it's just very hard to disentangle what are the different factors that are driving people's happiness. So what are the things that are driving people's happiness? Is it, is it across the board similar? I mean, I suppose there, there are similarities. And, and that's a really excellent question. So the initial research really focused on Western cultures. It started within the United States, but then it focused more broadly on Western cultures. There's now been a much broader shift to sort of looking at, well, 
what does happiness look like around the world? And do cultures actually see happiness in the same way? And a fair amount of research actually suggests that different cultures see happiness in really different ways. It's not just one thing. So what do we see in the West as, as happiness? And I guess, is it, um, is it beneficial to look at a, a sort of macro perspective of what happiness is before we go into the individual definition? Well, there's there's like a, a tension within this. So there's two sets of people who are predominantly doing research in the field of happiness. So as I described, one set of those people are psychologists. Yeah. Another whole school of research that's looking at this are actually economists. And so people within the field of economics are also looking at it, and sometimes they actually reach different conclusions. So for example, there's research that looks at the link between happiness and parenting. So are parents you know, happier or less happy than non-parents? And this is sort of a fundamental illustration of exactly your question. How do you measure happiness? So if you ask people who are parents, what is your overall life satisfaction? How do you feel? Parents overwhelmingly say, really happy to be a mom, you know, having children, it's really meaningful and so on. But if you ask parents, like right now at this exact second, how do you feel when you might be, you know, changing a baby's diaper or cleaning up their toys or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. handling from their life? I'm a newish parent, so I can understand that. <laughs> There's not that much joy. And so that's really the fundamental question is, is, is happiness a sense of, you know, global perspective of life satisfaction and contentment, or is it moment to moment, how happy do you feel? And the jury's still out on that. We don't have a consistent answer and agreement within the field. But they're talking. I'm just going to turn the camera off, Catherine, because it seems to be yeah. my computer sounds like a jet plane at the moment. So I'm just okay. going to <laughs> fine. turn that off. Um, feel free to turn yours off as well. It sometimes okay. interrupts connectivity. But um, yeah. okay. in regards to happiness, I know, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk, and I know some countries are implemented this now. They're measuring happiness um, rather than you know gross domestic product. Um, yeah. on a scale so I assume there's there's measurable quantities that they look for as far as what makes a culture or society happy um, and perhaps uh, you know some of these these elements can you share those with us so it certainly is the case that when people are in countries in which they have a sense that their basic needs are being met that increases the ability to find happiness. So for example, there's been a fair amount written that describes happiness within the Scandinavian countries. So, you know, Denmark and Sweden and Norway. And those countries have tended to report pretty high levels of happiness. And one of the reasons for that is that those are countries in which there's a pretty good safety net in terms of there's free education, mm. there's very good, you know, family leave patterns, uh, people take, you know, have paid vacation. And so lots of sort of the basic survival needs people aren't worried about. In right. places in which people are worried about survival, you know, food, safety, security, happiness can actually be harder to find. Yeah. But there's also and I don't know the research here, perhaps you can explain further, in some of those cultures where they don't have the the infrastructure, the, the certain you know, survival um, elements met, there seems to be a greater sense of happiness in some of those cultures. And I've travelled through some of Asia, Southeast Asia, where they, they are. They seem to be you know living it very tough compared to how we have it, yet they seem, in essence, really happy as well. Yeah, that and that's an excellent point. And and researchers believe that there are two factors that explain that sort of paradox of people living in you know relatively poor conditions and yet experiencing high levels of happiness. So one explanation is that in many of those cultures, there's a very strong emphasis on the family, the community, the sort of social surround. So mm. people really do you know, the, the expression, it takes a village. People really do know their their family members. They know their community. They know their neighbors. You know, grandparents grow up living close to their children, you know, and so on. So one is a really strong emphasis on family 
that you may not see in some cultures with greater affluence in which people move to take on new jobs and you know pursue new educational opportunities and so on. Another factor that also may play a role is there's a pretty strong association between having religious and spiritual beliefs and happiness. And many cultures in which there's greater affluence sometimes are less inclined to adopt those kinds of beliefs, religious and spiritual beliefs. And so that's also an association that having such beliefs is an especially strong predictor of happiness for people who are living in cultures in which they may have concerns about basic needs and basic survival. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a case of collectivism and individualism that drives exactly. some of that then? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Because we know that, yeah, I mean, relationships are, are fundamental for our happiness and longevity as far as I, I can tell. And I think the individual pursuits that we go after and, and that disconnect between our community um, often affects, affects um, yeah, happiness and, and how well we gel with others. And if we're not in community groups and not really bonding on that level um, that some other cultures might, then why would we need to take on, you know, religious ideals or spiritual pursuits? Because we're, you know, all about the self, I suppose, rather than the collective um, group. Well, exactly. And another key point, and I talk about this in my book, is that it's really, you had the idea before the insight that relationships are really so fundamental. And that's absolutely true. And the key about that is that it's not how many relationships we have. So it's not about having a great quantity of relationships. It's really about having high quality relationships. And so people who live in the same community as you know, family members, friends for a long period of time do have that advantage. And in fact, that can provide a sort of safety net if things aren't going well financially or their health crises, et cetera, that for people who are living in more affluent places, they may not stay stable. They may not have the opportunity to build and maintain those consistent relationships and have high quality relationships in the same way. Mm, yeah okay that makes sense and um you know i can certainly attest to that by moving around myself in my life that you sort of lose some of those relationships that do mean a lot um you know to your state of happiness so looking at some of those elements that we've talked about there i mean we've touched on relationships you touched on um education health um i suppose Mm -hmm. a sense of meaning or purpose and i guess that comes into the work that we might do or, or the the arts that we might pursue um, those, mm-hmm. those few elements there, there's four of them, um, really obviously depend on the environment circumstances that we are brought into or living within, um, as mm-hmm. to how that's going to affect our ha- happiness. But those four on a sort of macro, macro perspective or, or cultural perspective uh, are very important. Um, and I would almost assume that on the individual level, those four are very important in your own life as well, making sure that you do focus on your relationships that you are looking after your, your education, your learning, your growth that you are really taking care of your health, um, what else, that you are look, looking to pursue, you know, purposeful work that has meaning to you. Um, mm-hmm. Would that make sense to you? I mean, what's your research there? Absolutely. I mean, you're you're exactly right. If you think about the sort of buckets that people want to make sure they are meeting their needs in, it's very hard to be able to pursue meaningful work if you are suffering from chronic health problems. Mm. It's very hard to feel happy if you don't feel that there are people in your life who love you and who you care about. And even if you have people in your life who love you and you care about, if you're not able to do work that you find meaningful, and that could be officially you know, paid work your career, but it could also be volunteer work. It could be things that you do in your community or your neighborhood or your town that are meaningful to you, even if they're not the same things that you're able to get paid for and make a living doing. Mm. And you touch on another element there, I guess, of, of happiness, which I sort of have included in, in my research, is that, that level of contributional service to others. Yes, yes. Well, and in fact, some research suggests that we feel better about ourselves when we have the opportunity to give to other people. And that could be people that we know, family members, you know, friends, spouses, romantic partners, whatever. But it could also be 
people we don't know. So people who donate to charity, people who volunteer in their community, mm. they experience higher levels of happiness, even if they're doing those things, you know, for strangers, for people that they don't know and aren't in their own day-to-day lives, that giving absolutely makes people happier. Yeah, cool. I love it. Is there, are there any other elements that perhaps we've missed that, that may um, sort of influence our happiness? Well, there's lots of research suggesting that our physical environment matters. So spending time in nature, for example, Hmm. plays a major role in people's happiness. There are certainly people who find that they feel happier during the summer when there's more sun than during the winter when it gets dark earlier. But very consistently, people feel happier when they're looking at trees and flowers, whether that's physically being in that space or even looking at nature through a window. People feel happier when they're looking at bodies of water. So, you know, the ocean or a lake. So, so that also, I do think plays a really important role. Why is that? Is it, is it connected to our health in in respects there? There seem to be, there seem to be so many different factors. So one factor is that looking at nature seems to be relaxing physiologically, as you suspected, so that it lowers blood pressure, it may calm the brain waves. There's also research suggesting that it sort of clears the mind, that if you look at built space, man-made space, you know, buildings, technology, et cetera, there's just a lot going on, mm. whereas nature seems to be simpler and people show higher scores on memory tests on tests of you know cognition thinking ability reasoning when they are in a green space when they are looking at green space out a window etc workers in offices with more plants or with views outside also show higher levels of productivity at work so it really seems to have a number of different effects that are all probably somewhat uh, commingled. Yeah, right. Okay, that's cool. So environment definitely, and, and I couldn't agree more. Um, I know how how good I feel when I get out there and, and look at the water or go for a hike or even just go for a run, you know, get outside. Um, there's mm-hmm. just a weird thought that's come in my head right now is um, I was reading about how our eyesight as a population has deteriorated because we're not outdoors as much, and that's because of the, the perspective um, that we have. That is so interesting, and that perfectly makes sense. So, um, yeah, and it, it's um, what I was thinking then is is because it relates to thoughts, I suppose, and this is where I want to sort of take the conversation next is what are thoughts, what is mindset, because that's what your book is about. Um, mm-hmm. But if our eyesight deteriorates and we become so used to perhaps not needing it as much as we have in the past, how is that going to then affect our thoughts and, and our way we think going forward because it's directly linked to the brain and, and the amygdala and all that, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that the the thing that I really like about mindset is that it's something within our own control. Hmm. So as described in the book, there are people in the world who have a genetic predisposition to happiness so that sort of you know naturally go through life with a more positive, optimistic mindset in general. And they, you know, have always done this. And frankly, for these people, that's just kind of like, well, how I see the world. And I'm just going to make a guess right now. Would you describe yourself as someone who is sort of genetically predisposed to happiness? I would love to, yes. Um, yes. However, in saying that, I I, yeah. <laughs> I do have a pretty optimistic, positive mindset, but I, I certainly do have a negative tone to a lot of what I research and how I view things. Um, and, uh, like a roller coaster, I suppose sometimes I, I am negative. My mindset isn't strong and positive. Mm-hmm. It fluctuates. And do you, do you know, um, do you know if your parents had a similar view? Like, can you connect yourself to what they are? I'm always just sort of interested in where people think it came from. Do you, do you recognize that within your family background or not really? No, look, my, I've got three older brothers and probably out of my brothers, I'm probably the, the most positive, optimistic one. Okay. And maybe that's because I'm the youngest as well. Um, uh-huh. It's sort of mandatory to survive. Um, and also my mum and my mum and, and my father are different in that sense as well. I suppose my father would be more positive, optimistic, casual, carefree, whereas my mother is more of that worry, you know, anxious and all that sort of thing too. So there's a bit of a mix there. 
Yeah. So, so back to what I was going to say about mindset is what, what I think is so interesting is that there are people like perhaps you or, or perhaps your dad, yeah. uh, who, who go through life with this sort of more positive, optimistic mindset. Uh, but what I think is most important about this research is that for people who don't come by that naturally. So I would describe myself like your mom, you know, sort of more of a worry wart. And for people who don't naturally come by that, you can develop skills and strategies for adopting a more positive mindset, which is right. what I think is exciting about this research because it suggests that you're not just kind of doomed to be, you know, more negative, more worrying, you know, more pessimistic, that there's actually something we can do about it. And I find that personally very hopeful. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Um, and certainly, you know, when I do feel a little bit down or my mindset isn't that strong, I, I know I can influence that by doing a few things. And I look forward to maybe sharing a few different tools and techniques that you might have, have uh, with the audience today. Um, but I want to dump back to mindset. What is mindset? So mindset is really how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world. So we all have lots of mindsets that we use to think about things. So stereotypes are an example of a mindset that people might have stereotypes about, you know, what women are like or what men are like or what older people are like and so on. And we have these mindsets more broadly about how we see other people but we also have mindsets about how we see the world, you know, how we think that our lives are going to move forward, how we think about our possibilities for the future. And th these mindsets or framings that we adopt influence our happiness, our health and how we age, how long we live and so on. It's interesting. Very interesting. So how is the... I suppose how we think about the word out, how is our mindset developed? Is it conditioned over, over time? So part of it is certainly conditioned over time. So a really simple example of mindset is if you tell people, oh, you know, this bottle of wine costs $25. And then you tell them, oh, this bottle of wine only costs $5. And then you have people drink a glass of wine from supposedly each bottle. Very consistently, people will report that the wine that costs $25 tastes better than the wine that only costs $5. Hmm. So that's a really simple example of how we've been conditioned over time to assume that things that cost more are better. Yeah. So the wine example is sort of silly, but if you tell somebody – you know, who's having a migraine headache, I'm going to give you this special pill and this pill costs $25 a dose. And you tell somebody else you're having a migraine, you know, I'm going to give you this pill. This pill costs only 50 cents a dose. People who have the pill that they know is more expensive actually report greater pain relief. So mm. again, that's of course the placebo effect, yeah. but there's example again about mindset that we assume a drug that costs $25 a dose has to be better, you know, than a really cheap drug. And those are examples of mindsets, but they crazy, absolutely do impact how we feel. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard some studies that, um, you know, they actually have operations or told that they've had an operation and, and don't actually have the operation and then actually claim to feel better and, you know, well, yes, and, and that's a, a profound example. So in my book, I describe a study that was done in Houston, Texas, in which they actually brought in men who were experiencing knee pain, and a third of the men actually had you know the regular surgery, a third of the men had sort of a mild version of the a surgery, and a third of the men had no surgery at all. They just cut the knee open, sewed the knee back up. And exactly what you just said, it didn't matter which group you were in, all three groups of men reported feeling better function, less pain, more mobility, etc. Again, power of mindset. Mm, it's crazy. I love it. So I suppose over our lifetime, um, our mindset is conditioned by our upbringing, um, by our parents. As you alluded to before, there's a natural tendency there as well. Um, and perhaps that's through observation, but it's probably genetically um, come, transfers to us as well. 
Uh, are there any other things that may influence, um, I guess, culture as well, but any other things that may influence our mindset um, that we that we are unaware of there? Well, certainly media influences people's mindset. Yeah. So uh, media exposure to stereotypes, for example, has a very consistent impact on people's beliefs about, you know, what girls can become, what boys can become, et cetera. One key example that you see very consistently in Western culture is the media portrays lots of negative examples of aging. Mm. You know, with aging, you know, people get wrinkled and they develop dementia and they can't drive and, you know, et cetera. And so when you live in a culture in which there's lots of negativity about aging, you actually see people viewing aging as a more negative thing and then experiencing more negative outcomes. If you look at a culture such as many of the Asian cultures, you know, China, for example, in which people who are older are seen in a much more positive way as being, you know, full of wisdom and experience, you don't see the same sorts of challenges with memory Mm. in terms of the mindset because the aging mindset in that country is much more positive. So that's an example, again, about what is the cultural perspective and how does that influence mindset? Is that why some of the Asian cultures seem so, look so young? They, they really hold their age gracefully, don't they? <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting point. I don't know of anyone who's examined that, but that seems, boy, that's so fast. I, I don't know anyone who's looked at that, but what an interesting question. Because you're right, they, they do value... Um, aging it's not very negative and i lived in japan for several years so um, mm-hmm. i can certainly say that they they hold their age very well um compared to the likes of myself <laughs> that, that's such a, i wonder if somebody's researching that that's such an interesting question yeah. um okay so positive mindsets um going back to i suppose thoughts and i guess thoughts are influenced by all those elements that we just discussed mm-hmm. what is a thought and where do where do thoughts come from So thoughts come from our world experience. So we learn to think about things from, you know, how do our parents react? What are the messages that we receive from, you know, media or, you know, parents or teachers and so on. And I think one of the challenges is that sometimes people create thoughts in other people that are very well-meaning, but actually have unintentional negative consequences. So a, a really key example is that many parents and teachers tell their kids, oh, you know, you are so smart or you are so good at math or, yeah. you know, whatever. And that, of course, seems like a really positive thing. I mean, who doesn't want to be smart or who doesn't want to be good at math or whatever? And so that seems like, oh, that's a really positive, good thing. But it's also an example about a mindset that can have an unintended negative consequence. Because if you're told, oh, you know, you're smart or you're good at math, and then all of a sudden you don't do well at math or you don't perform well on a test, you might start to think, oh my goodness, you know, maybe those people are wrong and I'm really not smart. I'm really not good at that. And so what lots of research now suggests is that instead of telling kids, you're really smart or you're really good at this particular domain saying you worked really hard at that Mm. or you showed really good effort at that because we may not control how genetically naturally talented we are at, you know, music or art or math or whatever, but we can control how hard we persevere how much effort we give. And so giving people a sense of control over things is actually a really important part of shifting our mindset because things that we control, we can then do something about. And that's actually more helpful than just telling somebody, oh, you're naturally good at this. Okay, so more about rewarding the behavior rather than the outcome? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense, I suppose. For many of us, and it goes back to happiness, I would say happiness is in the pursuit, not in the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay. So, yeah, thoughts. I mean, I love thoughts. And actually, the question that maybe you are a bit more knowledgeable on than myself is um, the subconscious mind. Obviously, a lot of things that are happening there that we're uh, unaware of that influence the actions and our behaviors in our life. There are thoughts obviously popping up in our subconscious mind that we're unaware of as well then. 
Absolutely. And that's, you know, some of the effects of things like priming, so subliminal priming or subliminal processing, research has shown that even if you expose people, again, below the level of consciousness to words that are cueing old age, so, you know, wrinkled or gray hair or arthritis or whatever, people who have been exposed to those words at an unconscious level perform worse on memory tasks, they walk slower, they, you know, report worse health outcomes, et cetera. And so those are examples about how even triggering those sorts of subconscious processes, hmm. thoughts, you know, images, reminders can actually lead to negative outcomes. Yeah, right. It's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Um, so positive shift, the positive shift, <laughs> I assume the positive <laughs> Um, I'm just trying to direct the uh, conversation in a natural flow, but the positive shift is about how we're the positive psychology is now um, taking us towards a greater state of happiness, uh, longevity, health, etc. I assume that's where the title comes from. Is that correct or along those lines? That's, that is because the idea is that we can make a shift, you know, no matter where you start, that we can make a shift in our thoughts in a positive direction and thereby experience all of these assorted benefits. What is the balance between positive and negative focus? So the book is very much about trying to do things that will bring people happiness. So mm. it's very much a book that's focused on trying to develop skills and strategies and practice doing things that will increase the overall proportion of time in which we spend happy. Now, that being said, I think a really important thing to remember is that the route to happiness is different for different people, that for some people, certain strategies, certain techniques, certain behaviors are going to work better than others. Mm. So I look at this book as sort of giving people information about the role of mindset and in influencing happiness, the role of mindset and in influencing health and longevity, but the final section of the book actually describes different things people can do to increase happiness in their own lives. And my expectation is that different people will find different parts of the book more important because it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah, like a lot of things, huh? Um, so the route to happiness then is, is very much an individual thing and I suppose that we need to define that on the individual level. But even with that, I mean, some of us are probably, as you said before, more positively inclined. Um, but shouldn't we look at some of the negatives as well and be aware of, of potentially some of the negative futures that might pop up in our lives? So if they do, we can manage them as they come positively? Absolutely. And so one of the things that I talk about at some length in the book is that actually experiencing some negative events is good for you. So there's really interesting research, and this is not my, my own research, but I talk about it in the book. And what this research shows is that people who have experienced between two and six adverse life events, so things like getting divorced or the death of a loved one, you know, getting fired, mm. something like that, but people with a major illness or injury, those things, mm. people who experienced between two and six of these adverse events actually show higher levels of happiness than people who have experienced none of these events. So basically people who've gone through having perfectly easy, good lives. Mm. And so that's a really interesting finding that because what that suggests is that people who've had nothing bad happen to them are not as happy as people who've had some bad things happen to them. Mm. And the reason for that, researchers think, is that once you've experienced some bad things, it gives you an ability to develop skills and strategies for coping with subsequent negative events. So in that sense, when bad things happen, instead of wallowing and saying, you know, this horrible thing happened to me, you know, I'm never going to be happy again, you know, my life is over, you know, et cetera, that we can take those ne negative experiences, which of course will happen to everybody eventually, mm. And we can frame those experiences, which are, of course, objectively negative, but we can frame them in a positive way. Right. Then I suppose that um, 
you know, I'm just thinking about people who have near death experiences. Um, it really shakes them up and they gain a almost immediate sense of wisdom about what's important in life. And it goes back to those elements that we touched on before, you know, they start to realize that, okay, well, um, perhaps my, my work isn't that meaningful and, and that's really important to focus on that or my relationships I haven't really given them the time, you know, I haven't really spent time with my children, all those things. That's exactly right. And so that's why people who have a near-death experience, people who experience a, a major loss, of course, those things are horrific and, and we don't want them to happen to us or our loved ones. Mm. But there's actually some value in having experienced those and being able to say, okay, this bad thing happened. What have I gained from it? What have I learned from it? How have I grown as a result of it? Not just, oh, woe is me. This is a terrible thing. Yeah. So you start to appreciate those things in life to a higher mm -hmm. level, I suppose, which influence then the happiness. Um, yes. So where do we begin? What's the route to happiness? What are some of the tools that you might share in the book that you could share here today to help get the audience started on that path? So I, of course, I could talk about this forever, and yeah. I know that you don't have forever. So um, I'll, I'll just say a few that, that I think are particularly meaningful. So one we've touched on a lot, and that is the quality of relationships. And I'm going to return to that one only because it is, in fact, the most important. And that is that even people who have great physical health, who have jobs they love and are very fulfilled by and have meaning and purpose in – for people who lack close relationships and are not happy in their relationships, it's very hard, virtually impossible to find true happiness. So one key factor is clearly focusing on mm. the quality of our relationships. Yeah, yeah. Another factor, which we've touched on a little bit in this call, but I think is also really important, and that is avoiding comparisons with other people. So mm -hmm. many people might feel very happy in their own lives, but then they start comparing their lives to other people. And maybe you do this on social media. Maybe you do this, you know, in what you see, you know, within what your friends are describing. But all of a sudden people can start feeling much worse because their own lives just don't feel as glamorous, as prestigious, as exciting, you know, as fulfilling, whatever. Mm. And, and the real challenges is that when people spend more time on social media, they can actually feel worse about themselves because of the comparisons they make. We talked at the beginning of our conversation today about people living in pretty dire circumstances who are actually experiencing high levels of happiness. And there's a really interesting phenomenon that I talk about in the book that's called the wealthy neighborhood paradox. And what this research shows is that people who live in really wealthy, fancy neighborhoods sometimes actually experience lower levels of happiness. Because if you're living in a really wealthy neighborhood, you're making all of these comparisons to people around you who probably are pretty wealthy. And that can actually make the comparisons harder by virtue of looking at, you know, these wonderful lives that everybody else are experiencing. And so there's a, an example of how people want to have greater wealth. People think that money is the route to happiness. But one of the reasons why money is really not the route to happiness is that having greater wealth also changes the nature of the comparisons that we make and not for the better. Mm, yeah. Does comparisons help society progress because we're, in a sense, then competing? Well, so I think the, the really interesting point is I think that, in a sense, comparisons can help us progress. But then the question is, what are we comparing ourselves about? Mm. So many people might say, well, I compare myself based on how much money I make or how big my house is or, you know, where I went to college or, you know, et cetera. And those are all comparisons that are pretty easy and objective to make. But yet the reality is we may not be comparing how we are in the ways that matter the most. Mm. So how happy are we? How, how we meaningful feel. Yeah. We feel right. How do we feel? So I remember being at an event with um, 
a bunch of parents of my oldest son and he was in high school at the time. And I said to one of the other moms, you know, I really hope that Andrew becomes a high school teacher. You know, I think he, you know, really just be a great teacher. You know, he loves kids and teaching and you know, has a lot of passion for it. And I think it would make him really happy. And the other mom said to me, oh, well, you know, Andrew is so smart. You know, he could really have a job that pays much better than that. And it was such a funny example to me because when I was thinking about teaching, I was thinking he would find it really rewarding. He would find it really meaningful, mm. have his summers off, you know, that sort of thing. And she was thinking it's not such a prestigious uh, or lucrative job. And so she and I were comparing but we were comparing on different levels, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a challenge in itself, isn't it, to to avoid those comparisons? I find it extremely it's such difficult. a challenge. It's such a challenge. Yes. So, what 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 sort of techniques do we? I mean, other than like social media, obviously, we can switch off um, there, and that's something that I, I certainly do to avoid comparisons because I, I did notice uh, it affected my mindset a little bit um, a yeah. few years back. Um, but what else? What what other techniques can we do to sort of avoid the comparisons on what isn't meaningful and, and important to maybe just comparing ourselves with what is important and really just focusing on on us and how we feel and, and our goals. Right. So, so you hit on something that I think is extraordinarily important, and that is focusing on yourself. So instead of being like, is my, you know, job or car or vacation or home or whatever, is it as good as these other people's? It's really about what makes me happy? And so if I have a job that maybe doesn't pay as well as somebody else, or, you know, I have a, you know, less nice house or less nice car or purse or whatever, trying to say instead of, uh, oh, how does mine compare to these other people? Hmm. Focusing inwardly, how do I feel about this? Not how do I feel about this compared to somebody else? So there's a wonderful quote that's actually the, title of one of my chapters and it's a quote by president teddy roosevelt of the united states and it says comparison is the thief of joy yeah and so again i think whenever possible trying to avoid comparisons and whether that's turning off of social media or whether that's focusing inwardly how do i feel about this not just how do i feel about this in comparison to this other person yeah, and I suppose that that is developed through that practice, like most of these things and, and the things that you talk about in the book, but through um, self-awareness as well. Um, the mm -hmm. more self-aware yes. you are, then because otherwise, how do you pick up on that? How do you pick up on, oh, actually, I'm doing this because I'm comparing myself to X, Y, Z, and that's what's you know making my behaviors as they are. Often we mm -hmm. won't. We won't pick up on that. No, and, and I think you're exactly right, that it's this idea of self-awareness of learning, oh, wait, when I do this, I feel less happy. Hmm. I think of the example uh, that for many people, maybe you don't really want to go exercise. I mean, at least I often don't. You know, I, I'll go and exercise, you know, I'll go for a run or I'll, you know, take a aerobic class or something and I'll say, you know what? I'm going to feel better after I do it, even if I don't really want to lace up my sneakers, even if it's kind of cold outside, whatever. But I know that after I do it, I'm going to feel better. And so part of it is just having that self-awareness of even if in the moment I don't feel like doing this, I know how I feel after I do it mm. and developing that self-awareness and then practicing that repeatedly, it becomes easier that this becomes my habit, you know, my routine. This is what I do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So we've got, um, you mentioned a couple of things there and you said you had three that you were going to mention. What was that third one? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the third one, thanks for reminding me. The third one are, there are lots of behaviors that we can do. So we've just been focusing on thoughts, you know, try to have a more positive mindset, uh, try not to do comparisons. But there's a whole set of behaviors that people can do. And sometimes just doing certain behaviors can lead people to feel happier. So exercise. Yeah. After exercise, people feel better psychologically. Obviously, exercise is good for you physically. Getting enough sleep. That's something that so few people do. Mm. There's a, an epidemic of sleep deprivation. So sleeping, 
it's pretty easy. And making a point of saying, I know I feel better, I feel happier, I feel less, you know, frustrated, you know, less, um, you know, foggy in my thinking, uh, etc. So getting enough sleep, there's something that's really simple, yeah, spending 100%. time outside, you know, spending mm. time in nature, those are just simple behaviors that we can engage in that we do know make us feel better. Yeah, uh, getting amongst it, you know, like, um, you talked about relationships as a key there getting out there and Going to a community event, going to, you know, if you don't mm -hmm. have any events, there's, there's so many opportunities. And I think this is where social media and that do, does play a good role. It actually, we can connect and, and find out the like-minded people and tribes that we want to associate with online and mm -hmm. then actually go offline to connect with them. Um, yeah, the one of my favorite examples. Um, of that is uh, reading groups. So when people, you know, find other people on social media who are in a book group or have just read a book, uh, reading is a wonderful behavior that makes us feel better. And we can also connect with other people who maybe, you know, share that same passion for that book or that author or that genre or whatever. Mm, mm. Oh, I love it. Love it all. It's all good stuff. I think if we, if we look over our conversation today, um, you know, the audience can, and can piece it together and sort of really go back to some of those important elements we talked about as culturally what defines happiness and what really influences happiness and you can do that on an individual level um, and really focus on what what is happiness to you and then from there you can really develop that self-awareness and the practices that will help you um, move forward and over time through practice change your state of happiness so uh, i want to encourage the the audience to reach out and pick up your book and i've got some quick round questions for you as well, Catherine, that I want to jump into. Um, but before Great. we close the topic of happiness, what are some of the key challenges you see um, as a population moving forward with the topic of developing happiness? So I think one of the real challenges is, in fact, social media that we've talked about before. So I'm the mom of three teenagers. I am old enough that I never had to go to parties in which I saw other people posting pictures online about the parties that I wasn't invited to. And my three kids experience that all the time. And so I really do worry about the sort of ratcheting up of pressure for teenagers, uh, for anxiety. And I'm really hoping that we as a society kind of get better at helping children, helping teenagers, helping college students find greater happiness within and, and do less comparison. I worry about that a lot. And of course, I, I teach in a college and I teach at a pretty small college. And yet in, in 2018, uh, we lost two students to suicide. Yeah. And, you know, th that really just breaks my heart. And so I really hope that as a society, we can get better at handling mental health issues and, and navigating the, the needs that, that people have to, to really find happiness. Yeah. That's crazy, the suicide. And is, is that really because they feel through comparison that they're not enough in what they do? Is that, I mean, it's hard to say, I guess, but. I mean, I think it's hard to say. And obviously, you know, 2018 also brought us, you know, many high profile examples of, you know, wealthy, famous celebrities who, you know, seemingly, you know, had perfect lives, at least as we would assume, you know, from the outside. So obviously, clinical depression is, is really, really complicated. And there are lots of factors that go into it. But I think one of the real issues is that we as a society aren't really comfortable admitting when we don't feel good. So people mm. who feel anxious or depressed or lonely, they, they also feel alone that, you know, I feel anxious, I feel depressed and no one else feels like this. Absolutely. And, and I think reducing stigma about mental health challenges that many, many people go through and increasing the availability and, and comfort with seeking help uh, is really essential. Yeah. Cool. Does social media then have a place do you see or not? I think so. And I, and I think one of the keys is that people have typically used social media to describe the good, you know, their successes, you know, the, the things they're proud of. And I really wish that people would start turning to social media to describe I'm not doing well or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling lonely, uh, et cetera. And that, that if social media could become a place in which people could become more of their authentic selves as opposed to more of their self-presentational selves, I think that would help. Okay. I could go back to that, that point about, you know, not 
not using social media to promote our outcomes, but rather to promote our behaviours and what we're doing. And um, in that sense, you know, I mean, you look at the images that girls must see. I couldn't imagine being a, a lady or female in, in this day and age with the amount of comparison out there of what they're expected to look and, and be like um, through that comparison. And that's only going to take the right sort of women to go out there and say, hey, this is okay. You don't need to look like this. And rather than people jumping onto, hey, Botox in your lips and boob jobs and all that sort of stuff, you know, like seriously, like, yes, no, well, well, and that, and that plays into women's body image, you know, high school girls, you know, and younger. It also, of course, uh, illustrates, you know, the challenges of, of people growing older and not looking like what's supposed to be attractive as, as people age and get, you know, gray hair and wrinkles and so on. And again, thinking about that, the role of media and those comparisons is essential. Yeah, so it's up to us that are using it. To, it's how we use it, really, social media, isn't it? We've got to use it in a more positive manner. Um, Absolutely. So that's cool. Okay, quick round of questions. I'm aware of the time. I appreciate uh, the conversation so far. Thank you. Yep. I'm just going to pop up my questions here. The first one is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? So I am a crazy list maker. I have, you know, yellow tablets, um, you know, that I carry with me and I, and I try to keep track of, you know, things, ideas that I have, things I need to do. And it's, it's really how I stay organized. So you just keep sticky notes or do you have a, an app that you use or software or anything like that? No, I'm like old school. I am old school. I handwrite it on like a literal yellow piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I'm, I'm old school as well. I've just uh, opened up an app again now that I can put my reminders in there just so I don't forget about them. But I typically mm -hmm. go from pen to paper to the app mm -hmm. and then it's just there if I forget about it because a lot of the mm -hmm. stuff that we put on there isn't that important. Um, that's cool. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Um, the advice would be it's going to be okay. I think um, when I was 20, you know, if something bad happened to me, a relationship breakup or I did poorly in a class or I didn't get a summer job I wanted, you know, I, I had a very fatalistic, you know, no one will ever love me and I'm never going to get a job and I'm going to be unemployed, you know, et cetera. And I, I, I wish that I had told myself then it's going to be okay, you know, that these are not life and death things and you're going to be all right. Yeah, that's actually such a common answer to that question. It's unbelievable. Is it? Um, yeah. Oh, that's it's quite amazing. Um, how would you define success? Success for me is really about relationships. I mean, it, you know, relationships with family members, with friends. Um, I, I have a three kids, as I said before, and you know, they're all you know decent people, whatever. But the thing that I feel best about as a mom is that they all get along really, really well with each other, and and it's the thing that I take the the best pride in that I have as a mom. None of them are you know the smartest kid in their class. None of them are the best athlete in their class. None of them are the best musician in their class. You know, et cetera. Uh, none of them are going to, you know, be an astronaut or a president or a, you know, movie star, but they, but they get along really well. And, and that to me is, uh, is the best thing I've done as a mom. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. And what advice would you give someone looking to make some change? So I use very, very small amounts of time in really productive ways. So if I only have, you know, if I have 10 minutes and I'm sitting in the, you know, waiting room for the dentist or whatever, I have my list out and I, you know, write a grocery list or I write a note to a friend or I make that phone call that I've been meaning to make. I listen to podcasts in the car, you know, or while I'm cleaning all the time. So I, I try to use even small amounts of time to get things done. So that's a, a sort of productivity technique for you? Yes, yeah. yes. And what about advice to someone looking to make change in their life? If you look at the research very consistently and you ask people, what do you regret the most? Most people report regrets of inaction, things they didn't do much more than regrets of action. So try to avoid having a regret of inaction, whether that's personal or professional, because that's what's going to haunt you more. Cool. That's true. If you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's it's not very healthy. Um, I would request ice cream and probably some combination of like mocha chip or, you know, coffee, uh, chocolate, peanut butter, something like that. It would definitely be ice cream. I love ice cream. 
What is the activity that gives you the greatest sense of joy? Travel. I love, I love going to new places. I love seeing new things. I love planning trips. I love anticipating trips. I love being on trips. I love reflecting back on trips. Travel. What, what was the, what was the a place you've traveled to that was perhaps the, the most interesting, the, the place that you totally unexpectedly enjoyed? Oh, totally unexpectedly enjoyed. I mean, I, I um, I went to Barcelona last summer and it was fabulous, but I wouldn't say it was unexpected in terms of the joy. Um, but, but sometimes there'll be moments of a trip where the thing that, you know, I didn't think was going to be the best part of the trip. That thing was the best part of the trip. So I like, you know, seeing new things, uh, and, and I like being surprised. Yeah. If you could pass one book down to your children, what book would that be other than your own? Oh, and it wouldn't be mine, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I I read a wonderful book on a plane, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, by uh, a former surgeon at Stanford Medical Center who died, and it's called When Breath Becomes Air. And it's really about his experience, you know, as a surgeon realizing that he had cancer, and he wrote this book as he was dying. He was young you know, left behind a wife and a, and a very young daughter. And I, I read the book on an airplane and I literally cried on the airplane. So I would not recommend reading it on a plane. Uh, but, but the book was very touching and that it's a real reminder that life is short and unpredictable. And at the end, you know, we're not thinking about, I wish I had more money. We're thinking about people. Hmm. And I'd actually argue that it's probably a good idea to read that sort of a book on a plane because it's about comparison and that shows people how you feel. Right, right. Very true. I was very self-conscious with my seatmate, you know, thinking I was having a breakdown, but that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> what, what quote, phrase or text, uh, sorry, message would you text or tweet the entire population if you could? Well, I've said it to you already today on this podcast, but I love it and it is comparison is the thief of joy i think that's the key stop doing it yeah i love that one do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose i believe that we all have many different options that could be the hidden why or the purpose Uh, i i love the robert frost poem about two roads diverged in the yellow woods and i love my life now i i feel like i have great purpose in what i'm doing uh, but I also feel like there are probably alternative lives that, that I could have led that also would have had purpose. So I think that we all do have a purpose, but I'm not sure if it's just one. Yeah, cool. So it's sort of something that um, could be multiple and could evolve as, as life evolves. Yes, yes. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? It means um, doing things that bring me meaning that, you know, for me, that's, you know, the writing I do, the talking I do, you know, sharing talks about happiness, for example, with you today, um, and, and spending time with family members and friends that that's, you know, what both my work and my, and my family friend life both give me great senses of passion and purpose. And what is the, what do you believe is the underlying motivation that, um, is behind everything you do in your life? So for me, it's really about I want to feel that I've made a difference. So there are lots of people who are academics. I am an academic who you know, do research and write and, and talk about particular topics that, to be honest, I would have great trouble researching and talking and writing about because really it's hard to see how it makes a difference. And for me, I've always been most interested and captivated by questions that I think can make a difference. So I like talking about happiness. I like writing and researching happiness and health because my hope really is that people will, for example, listen to your podcast, mm. uh, read your book, and they will do something different in their lives moving forward. And I'm hoping that I'm making a difference. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Very I bet aligned. You Very aligned. Well. Yeah. Is that you? I mean, I would say this is true for you too. Yes. Yeah, look, I, I do this because it, it helps me. It gives me a lot of meaning. It creates a lot of sense of happiness in my life. And I hope by sharing that it, it helps others as well. So mm-hmm. it's sort mm-hmm. of twofold, isn't it? Um, wonderful stuff. What's your definition of happiness? Happiness for me is about contentment, feeling a sense of peace and contentment. 
Yeah, very cool. It's been a pleasure, Catherine. Catherine A. Um, Sanderson, and thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to... Um, and likewise. Yeah, that's I'll been a great conversation. When you, um, when you post it, because I definitely will um, advertise it on my social media. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. And um, look, I will... It'll be posted probably in a week. I do apologise. My computer's been making this... Um, this noise today so i hope that hasn't affected the quality too much but guys out there jump on to the show notes check it out i'll stick all the links in there for Catherine, the book um use the links for the books there please to help support the show as well uh, including the book that she recommended um, i'll stick that in there as well so you can check out that and um, any comments questions reach out to us comment on the show notes or reach out to us directly there'll be links there as well so um Catherine, how do people best reach you generally um, so I am on, I have a website, which is sandersonspeaking.com and all of my contact information is available there. And, and people can also see talks I've given, you know, learn more about uh, different areas in which I write and research. So sandersonspeaking.com. Sandersonspeaking.com. I'll see you in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks once again. Same. Take care. Have a nice day. Until next time, guys. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with the people that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link and help support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there, breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden light. This is The Hidden Light. My name is Lee Martin. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.